Welcome to the end of the U.S. Open on No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, joined by Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. It's over. Hello, Ben. It is. <laughs> How are you feeling at the end of this uh, three-week, because it's not just two, it's three, three-week romp through Grand Slam. I'm tired. And in the Big Apple. Yeah, I'm really tired. It's I, a like, long one. I don't know. I think that like last night, like after the women's final, Ben and I had, had dinner and drinks afterwards. It just hit like a ton of bricks. Like I know I never, I very rarely ever hit the like eject button when we're out being like, yeah, no, I need to go home right now or else I'm going to go to sleep. But I was like, yeah, no, I'm done. That's usually my move. That's usually Ben's move. And so I was just like, it just suddenly hit me. And then I thought that it would go away today on Sunday and it didn't. I just have been like just nesting yeah. and trying to gain, regain energy and motivation. I don't think the men's final did much to rouse you. <laughs> so let's start with just the men's tournament. And just because that was the most recent thing. That's how the men get you. That's the patriarchy at work. Always the men seem like they're the bigger thing. Because uh, they go last. Woohoo. Uh, <laughs> Rafael Nadal was a big woohoo at this tournament. He played well and won the tournament and won his 16th Grand Slam. Uh, his third U.S. Open, beating Kevin Anderson in the final. 3-3-4 three, three, and four for Rafael Nadal. Um, surprising, I'm surprised this match wasn't closer, to be honest. Uh, that's due to Rafa. He was very good at shutting Kevin down and did a great job at protecting his own serve and made Kevin work really hard to hold his own. I mean, that, that base, the return position, You're so I was fixated it. on. So it was obsessed. so, it was so weird watching it though. And like having Rafa be out of frame and still winning. Cause it feels like, okay, like this is like weirdly like, uh, I don't even know what the word is for it. It's not usually my keeping, but like I was watching this and it looked weirdly like cowardly to me. I don't know, standing so far back like you're afraid of the serve, but it also worked completely, it, and it so it was effective. Does. Yeah, it usually but does. Usually, Rafa that's why make... I was like weirded out that you were obsessed with it. But, I was like, but Ben, this isn't the first time we've seen it. No, but usually he mixes it up and does it occasionally. He was married to it because because and to his credit, he was stuck with the winning strategy because Anderson had no answer for it. And that also surprised me. I thought Anderson would find a sort of you know slicing out wide serve that would just sort of spin into the side. I don't think that Kevin Anderson has that serve, That's apparently not. Yeah, that was the scouting report Rafa had, that he doesn't have that serve. I mean, I I hadn't thought... I haven't watched Anderson play enough important matches to really, like, detail that. Like, I know... I can tell you, like, Isner has that serve. Right, no, but, like, watching him against... I mean, even if I don't watch Kevin Anderson all the time, who... I love Kevin Anderson. I'm so happy that he made the final. Just so we can We'll get to him. We'll get to him. But, um, yeah, but watching him play against Query, watching him play against Carreño Busta, um, you know, a number of matches this, you know, during the fortnight. I did remember that. I was just like, yeah, you really just take it heavy and hard, like, down the middle. Like, you don't really have a lot of, a ton of the variety on that serve. That's true. And it was enough because Kevin Anderson was in the bottom half of the draw, which we knew forever would be full of opportunity. And indeed it was. And I did like what Sam Query said after losing to Anderson in the quarters he said something which i thought was a fair very fair statement he was like just because the bottom half is open doesn't mean that 63 guys like flop by not making the final very true which is true and that's a weird way you can say like oh my gosh how do you not make the final this is an open section but like only still only one person gets to make the final and it was kevin anderson and he's been playing well this summer and he took advantage of it um got through a part of the draw that was um vacated by uh Sasha Zverev, I think, was going to be his third-round opponent, but instead he got to play Borna Cioric after Sasha lost that one, and Sasha was the only top-four player in the bottom half of the draw after Andy Murray's withdrawal. 
Um, and then Anderson beat uh, Lorenzi, which has got to be said a very easy fourth round match to get. But then played Query, who's been playing really well, and Query had dominated Misha Zverev in the other fourth round match. Anderson wins that, and then he beats Pablo Carreño Busta, which I thought, I thought at the time was very good for the chances of a big final because I thought that Anderson would be able to sort of control his own destiny more than Carreño, who's a bit more of a counter puncher, and I thought would just get worked over by whoever made it out of Nadal or Del Potro. I don't think, that's a, I don't think that's, a bad, that's a bad analysis. It's just that I don't think that anybody really expected Rafa to play as well as he did in the final. No. You know, I think that Kevin didn't play badly. I mean, he was throwing his shots. He was doing everything that he could possibly do. Obviously, when you do that, you're going to miss a few more times than you're not. But uh, but Rafa was incredible in the final. Rafa was incredible, really, I think, like the whole second week. Yeah. I mean, he destroyed Dolgopolov fourth round, destroyed Rublev quarters, and and beat down uh, after losing the first set to Del Potro, really re- dominated the last three sets of that match. I think he only lost like five games in the last three sets. So, I mean, he made this tournament. This it, the tournament was based on oh, uh, Federer at all semifinal. Let's hope that happens because the only thing that could like sort of save this tournament was sort of the talk before, um, and that didn't happen. And Nadal took advantage of that. And not that Del Potro didn't figure to be an easy match, but he looked like he was out of gas. Yeah. By, by the end, understandably, after going uh, five, four with Federer? Four or five well, with that? Well, ga- yeah. gassed and also... Four. Rafa was just very, very, very good, he was good in that match. And I think that, you know, we were talking about this the other night, a bunch of us, about how there is this thought that, like, Delpo is the only one that could beat, like, all those guys, like the big four guys, and do it back-to-back. And, oh, he did it in 2009, and beating, Ra- beating uh, Rafa and then beating Roger... In, but I think, I mean, I could be wrong, but, like, in the grand scheme of things, it's really that he stands toe-to-toe with, like, Novak and Roger really well. But with Rafa, it's a little bit of a different story, especially over best of five. I could be wrong on that, but that was always my sense. Just throwing that out there. Yeah, I, I mean, he has a losing record against him. I think, I want to say he's, like, I'm going to throw out a number here that yeah, sure even, is wrong. But like I don't know four if losing and nine record, or something like But that. I don't think losing record really matters to me. But I just think that, like, in the big, in my head, whenever, like, Delpo pulls Novak or um, Roger, I get really excited for the upset because I genuinely believe that on any given day, Delpo can win that match. I have less confidence in the head-to-head between him and Rafa. Like, I never think that, like, oh, yeah, I always, in my head, I'm always like, oh, my God, he's going to lose Rafa. Well, I just, I, I had, I was intrigued by that match and excited for it because Rafa hadn't been absolute peak Rafa. I didn't think, I mean, he had been against Rublev, which I didn't read too much into, and Dolgopolov, those are not particularly dangerous opponents to him. But he had struggled against Leonardo Meyer. He had struggled against uh, Taro Daniel. And so... But uh, I feel like Rafa is one of those people that, like, once he locks in, regardless of the... That's what happened here. Yeah, yeah, like, regardless of the quality of the opponent, once he gets that one or two good matches where he feels like he's hitting the ball well and moving well, uh, that's kind of all he needs to unlock. No, I proved that, for sure. Yeah. And And he's... And so Rafa wins the US Open. And we get a year... In 2017, when Rafa and Roger split the majors, what do we? That's the first time it's happened since 2010. Yeah. What do we make of that happening in 2017? No one would have thought it. I don't think people no. would have saw, been, you know, saw that coming. I mean, okay, Rafa wins, you know, the French, or okay, maybe Roger wins Wimbledon. But for them to cap off the season with, with obviously they played in the final of the of the Australian Open, so one of them was going to win that one. But then here at the U.S. Open which hasn't necessarily been an easy slam, uh, you know, for either of them necessarily to win. 
uh, for for Rafa to come through was was pretty impressive. Obviously, a lot of things click into place there with respect to the draw and all these things. He didn't play a top twenty five player. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. first hey, time anybody's won a slam if since Marion Bartoli the... can do it, so can Rafa. That's true. Although she's not she, playing anybody top twenty five. She played Sloan. She played Sloan. Sloan was seventeen, so it was something yeah. like no top fifteen player or yeah. something like that for Marion. Yeah. Um, Rafa Nadal, the Marion Bartoli of the men's tour. Ooh. That's, I, think I say that first, with love. I say I say it with confusion. I think it's the first <laughs> time it's ever been said. I don't. I didn't say it. She said it. Um, but yeah, uh, other other men's notes, and I feel like we'll get more into the uh, the women too, and then we'll have some cultural happenings we'll talk about. Otherwise, um, for Federer, he looked like terrible in yeah. this tournament. He looked straight up bad. He looked hurt. Um, he, he he didn't look like he was fully fit from his whatever back issues that flared up for him against Zverev in the Montreal final. Um, he, which then forced him out of Cincinnati, I believe. But yeah, definitely that was right. He went five with Tiafo, five with Eugenie, which was even much more shocking than, than yeah. Tiafo. I was like, oh boy. And then he looked like he was doing okay against Feliciano Lopez and Philip Kohlschreiber, who were sort of familiar punching bags to him in his career. Uh, and then he, yeah, he went out flat against Delpo. Um, I, I, he's currently plans to play the rest of the year. He's not shutting it down like so many of, of, of his peers have because at some point you got to be like, well, who do I have to beat to like... Right, like if I just show up, I should I'm gonna be in a pretty I'm going to get to play Crania Busta in London. I might as well keep playing. Um, you know, yeah, so I, I, I don't know. What, what do you think of his uh, of his run here? And I mean, yeah. the thing is, Roger won two slams this yeah, year. Like he has, really... the, he has this huge pile of house money. I'm not going to get I'm mad about it. I'm very confused by everybody being so butthurt about Roger Federer not playing better or winning the U.S. Open phenomenal season for him not just at the slams but on the atp tour as well like yeah he's what thirty five thousand years old like what is he 36 mm-hmm. 30 uh he just turned 36 36 he's 36 years old the body is a 36 year old body you cannot and it's unfair to expect any player to play the way that he has played throughout this entire season across the board through the end to the finish line he had a bad you know four weeks that's gonna happen um, with the back flaring up and forcing him out of tournaments. And then once you're forced out of tournaments, you don't get the preparation that you want. So maybe when he started the tournament, maybe he was fine at the U.S. Open, at least at the start of it. But he already knew mentally he was behind the eight ball a little bit with the f- respect to his physicality. And he can't trust his body the way that he does. Yeah, so I don't really think that it's really that big of a deal or anybody should be worrying too much about Roger. What it was a little bit weird in terms of like red flag was what he said after he lost to Delpo of like, oh, I don't think that, like, Delpo has a better opportunity to beat Rafa. I don't think that I was playing well enough to win the tournament. That was just like a weird and very candid, and I appreciated it. Honest, yeah, you're probably right. But obviously the way that everybody was kind of unpacking that those combination of statements was, okay, you don't think that you can win the tournament. You know that you have to play Rafa and then either Carreño Busta or Anderson in the final so basically you're saying you don't think that you're playing well enough to beat Rafa. Right. Who you beat in the last four times you played him. Yeah, yeah, so it was a little bit it was a bit of an odd thing. And even the both of them, they were kind of very interesting and funny throughout the fortnight about talking about their potential semifinal matchup and you know, Rafa kind of beginning of the tournament saying like everybody's like, Oh, aren't you looking forward to that? And he's like, No. I want to play the le- the lowest ranked player. I want to play the easiest player that I could possibly play in the semifinal. And boy like, did he Whoa. get his wish. <laughs> <laughs> it was Delpo in the semis, but you know what I mean. Like he got a draw there was um some analysis on tennis abstract about easy draws and rafa hasn't had many but this one was like a historically easy draw by the numbers so 
can't begrudge him that, yeah, that he finally believe, gets no, one. No, but yeah, so it was just kind of funny that he, you know, that he was just like, nope, I want to win the title. I don't really care about you guys care about this whole me versus Roger thing. I want to win the title. I want to play the easiest draw I could possibly play. Bless him for his honesty. I loved that. <laughs> that was pretty good. Uh, other thoughts um, on men's miscellany? Uh, shout out to uh, Hermano. Diego Schwartzman, who made the quarterfinals <laughs> and just won over the hearts and minds of the people, uh, being second in Argentine, who got some of the Del Plus crowd support also, which just played very well and was feeling it physically for sure by the time he got to the quarterfinals against Karen Nabusta, which is always going to be a tough matchup for him. Uh, shout out to Karen Nabusta, who, as alluded to earlier, will probably be in London, and has just sort of taken advantage of open spots. I mean, he's, he's had a really good year results-wise and rankings-wise, and honestly, I couldn't tell you one good win he's had. Which may well, be my failing. I know he made uh, no, but he beat he beat Lajevich in the quarterfinals of Indian Wells memorably, and he um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I I'm I'm a bit flummoxed by his good form. I think he's a decent player. I think that he's just been the biggest lottery winner of this tournament. And Kevin Anderson, we'll get to him more. Kevin making it this point. We've known and enjoyed and liked the Andersons for a long time. What do you think it means for Ken Anderson to get a, a slam final after only one quarter before in his career? That was a very hard-fought quarter. To get that one quarter was a big breakthrough. To go two steps better here uh, feels like a, a very fitting sort of lifetime achievement award, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, he's always been kind of the, the, prof, the pro's pro, just like a classy, nice guy, goes about his business, plays well, you know, gets those, you know, you know, always a threat at 250s, you know, pushing to at the 500 hard hard as hell worker uh, hard as a hard worker and not, so not a name you want to see in your draw right exactly you never know um but i think that the, probably the book on him in the past is a little bit of a softer side competitor not that he was because he was a great collegiate player for illinois and you know was an all-american and obviously knows how to compete but he he would struggle sometimes in the clothes and and you would see that and it was always really frustrating for somebody who had the weapons that kevin anderson did with the serve and the forehand so great to see him in particular after undergoing surgery, after being away from the tour for so long um, and, you know, coming back to not just come back like from injuries, which I guess is the thing now. I mean, that's how you win things, I guess, yeah. these days. Uh, but um, not just that, but also coming back as a revamped kind of Kevin Anderson with the come ons and the shouting as you did that story, Ben, on uh, on him being more effusive on yeah. court and kind of and very purposefully. Yeah, yeah, purposefully so. And and I like that. I like to see these older players try something new, try something else on for size, see if it works for you, you know, and it clearly worked for Kevin Anderson. And very happy for him. Very happy for his wife, Kelsey Anderson, who is one of the, the nicest people on tour and the bestest people on tour and always lovely. So I think you can kind of tell with like tennis Twitter and stuff like that, like once everything started falling apart, it's like, ah, Kelsey could win a slam. And we kind of wanted Kelsey to win a slam. And she made a final. Yeah. So she's her wag game got shown. Her, in wag the, game, uh... her wag game has always been strong. She's a great lady. Very, very smart. Very intelligent. Gave up a lot to kind of travel the tour with Kevin was, you know, had a professional job of her own before. So. She was a past NCR guest talking right. about taxes. Yep. So if you want to listen to that, that's back. Uh, you can search us. That easily found. We'll link to it or something, hopefully. Yep. Um, I left one other name on the screen I want to get to here. Number nine over here. Whatever. Fanini getting a ban uh, from the tournament. This was, I think... I don't know if you don't want to talk about this. No, you, I don't, about we can't. It. But, I just don't really care. But I'm just saying it was him. it was it was a welcome <laughs> moment of Hammer actually getting thrown down finally, and I think it surprised people in a good way that there were finally consequences for for a uh, chronic life of boorishness. 
For sure. I mean, I do think John Wertheim brought this up in his mailbag, which or his 50 Thoughts, um, which everybody should read. Standard, standard yeah. uh, Grand Slam uh, habits. But in his 50 parting shots, he says, like, it's a little bit weird, though, that it took the USDA four days to come down with the fine because by that time, he and his doubles partner had knocked out two teams. Yeah. Which I was and like, the that's other teams true. were not happy about that. No, I'm was sure. one of them. He was not happy. Who? Rohan Bapana. Oh, yeah. He's one of the players. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. He's, he, Fabio is what Fabio is. And it's a really, really frustrating thing because if you ask around the locker room, everybody loves that guy. Everybody does. Like, everybody thinks he's, like, funny, super nice. Like, you won't really, it's hard to find players that think, like, much negatively about him publicly. Like, they won't really say it. Um, and they genuinely do adore him. But on the court, he just turns into it's it's very Jekyll and Hyde, and it's just unacceptable. And the, but the fact of the matter is, the sport has allowed him to do this. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a bit it's, it's a bit late to yeah, be slapping him on the hand now when he's been doing this for his entire career, and that's on the sport, and that's why the sport should be stepping in and nipping these sorts of things in the bud when 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 players are young, not worrying so much about like oh we only are worried about like our headline players and our big players, but like these players that are like the you know the non top 20 players or whatever all be it's like zero tolerance it doesn't matter and you should be finding them from the very get go whether it's a qualifying round or the first round or a final of a slam or a 250 like that is the lesson of Fabio Fanini it has to be stopped immediately yeah. and like that's why i shrug now that it's happening i'm like so i just hope that and i think USTA is also a tournament that really is proud of its sort of social record sure it trots out billy jean king and arthur ashe all the time and, it doesn't uh, look good when this is happening yeah. at the billy jean king usc right. national tennis center right and so exactly he calls and so for I, people who don't so, know what happened yeah so when go ahead no that you go ahead <laughs> <laughs> well he used misogynistic terms to uh, towards a female chair empire I don't feel like I need. You, I he don't. Feel know. It, he called a female Trump chair umpire a cocksucker, a cocksucking whore. Cocksucking whore. Yeah. Okay. I think that the words matter. Yeah, Everybody those are, uses those are the good. euphemisms of it's misogynist and it's sexist, but it's not that he. Yeah. It, Bocanada Troya in Italian. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. So that it's right. You shouldn't dress that up. And I also, you know, I've heard other things you've said that like Italian tweeters have like translated because he says things loudly on broadcast. He said ridiculous things on um, uh, during Wimbledon. I can just, yes. I'll say it just because we're, we're in the sort of X-rated version of part of this show. But he kept shouting that he was missing every shot by the by the hair of a pussy. By the hair of a pussy. Like, this is just not necessary behavior. <laughs> <laughs> any, That's a great comeback. On, this is not necessary behavior, Fabio. On any level, it's not. So all I have to say, I hope he gets a significant penalty. I think it's good for USA to step up. It flex well on them. I think they had a pretty good tournament overall. Yeah, they did, actually. And I think they – and they responded also by – I believe intentionally having five of the next six night matches on Ash be officiated by female umps. And it's sort of a solidarity thing. And it's been a, a thing that's been a, a struggle for female umpires to sort of, there's, there's perceptions within officiating people yeah. within tournament referees and tournament organizers, whatever, that they are not able to control men in men's matches. And uh, it's a good vote of confidence for, I the, will for vote the women. For Mariana Chichak against any ATP or in terms of who's going to wrestle control over that situation, every single freaking time. Yeah. She's a boss. She's a boss. So that is the um life. Control for some of those men. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, let's see. Other other men's thoughts before we move on to the ladies? I mean, this, I mean... I think it's a playing tournament. It's, no, no, not that's, I'm okay. not talking about that. I'm, I am 
again, rewinding back to our preview show and thinking back at like where everything was at when we were so innocent three weeks ago. <laughs> we had no idea what was coming. But once again, Sasha Zverev, Nick Kyrgios, Dominic Team, and again, I give Dominic Team a little bit of a waiver because he has obviously oh, performed we've mentioned at the that French loss Open. against Del Potro. Yeah, but I mean the French Open, he has performed at you know, and Nick obviously has done things at Wimbledon and da da da. But Nick has done things. He, Nick has done things at the Slams. But, like, again, waiting for that next group. I mean, the last next-gen or standing was Rublev, which nobody saw coming. Um, First actual next-gen to make a quarterfinal in the, in, the yeah. dem, in the Milan demographic. Sure, that, that works. And, you know, but, like, again, Sasha Zverev, seated number four. Everybody's talking about he's the guy, this is his time. I was very – I tempered a lot because I'm like, he's never come close to doing it. Like, and so it seems, like, a bit aggressive to say, like, he's, he's on the short list of favorites to – win a slam when he's never really done anything at slams over or really much of anything in, in best of five matches. So a bit disappointed there um, just with him and obviously feel really bad for Dominic team for blowing that, even though that was like the men's match of the tournament um, in terms of the, the Delpo team match. Yeah. But um, I feel bad for Dominic a little bit there. No, for sure. And he was pretty crestfallen afterwards. And I recommend if you haven't seen, I think we probably both tweeted it. Right. Uh, Chloe's piece on Dominic team for GQ. Yes. Which is good and sort of <laughs> must is a, read. It is a good way to sort of talk about a guy or, or write about a guy who gives you like pretty much nothing actually quote wise and like make that the story. Because it is, I mean, it is, I've written a similar sort of thing. I mean, team is fascinatingly earnest and simple and how he talks and just, yeah, it's a good story. You should read it. Um, I think that's it for dudes. I, I can't think of anything else. If we missed something, let us know. We'll get to it later, maybe. Maybe, maybe. not. Maybe. The ladies tournament, the 2017 Women's U.S. Open champion is Sloane Stevens. Sloane Stevens, Grand Slam champion. Not a sentence that would have sounded remotely plausible to be saying now as of the beginning of August. Yeah. Which is very recent. That's five weeks ago. I mean, like, talking even even after she went to the first hardcore tournament in Washington, where I saw her play Hallop, and she lost first round, uh, I think, 6-0. First set was okay. It was pretty good. She looked fine, but she didn't look slam winning good. And she kind of faded in the second and got bageled. Um, and she started putting things together. And she just kind of like was never in a match where she looked overmatched at this tournament. Yeah. And she's your winner. How did this happen, Courtney? <laughs> How did this happen? I mean, I think that in a lot of ways, this was all Sloan Stevens. I mean, it just, you know, we obviously... The big elephant in the room whenever you're talking about Sloan or trying to kind of build a narrative around Sloan or just even discuss with her, her her own career, is that 2013 season. And the breakout win that she had over Serena, obviously at the Australian Open, and everything that happened afterwards. And as I asked her on the uh, Champions Corner podcast for WT Insider, like, you know, what is it? You've been next big thinged probably twice now. Like, first in your initial, hey, Sloan Stevens, like, maybe. Like, she could be good. And then after beating Serena, then you got really big, next big thing. Stories in Elle, stories in Rolling Stone. Everybody knows who Sloane Stevens is. Like, no one, like, you know, like, casual fans know who Sloane Stevens is. We did a segment on that Elle story, I remember, in, like, episode 81 of this. If you want to go back and read yeah. that Elle story, that thing, that was something. That was something. So all the all these things happen. Obviously, much is made of many things. And she doesn't. <laughs> now we're not talking euphemisms. Now we're going to say much, is, say it. much say is made it. of many but things. Yes, you know? much is made about her relationship with Serena and Venus, and yeah. you know how all of that did it change? Did it did it not change? Whatever. 
And um, and obviously she struggled to win. She capped off at, at number 11 that year, never broke into the top 10. People forget that about her. It was an interesting thing of contrasting her with Madison going into the final because the th- things that I kept hearing from casual fans and I would look, you know, on searches on Twitter and things like that, people weren't asking who Sloane Stevens were. They were asking who Madison Keys is. Who's this girl? And I was like, she's been ranked higher than Sloane. She's qualified for the WTA finals. She's made a semifinal of a slam before she's made second weeks, but like for whatever reason, Sloan occupies that space. I think Madison it's so telling how big the currency of beating Serena is. And we I can guess get so. this a little bit in, I was, we'll, we'll talk later about Maria Sharapova's book briefly, but I found it fascinating. I'll spoil it with this part, reading her about the author in the back. Have you seen this? Yep. It's uh, born in Nyagin, Russia. Maria Sharapova moved to the United States when she was six years old at 17. Sharapova beat Serena Williams when Wimbledon. It's like in her, yeah. like three it sentence bio up. of herself, it and it's just, it's just sort of like it's like it's currency in the yes. sport, and so yeah, for Sloan that and doing it in a major, uh, being the first younger American ever to beat Serena, back when she did it, younger than uh, Serena, um, yeah, it, it, it had a lot of baggage, and she did not always handle it well. But and the, but the interesting thing about her not handling it well, was that she always denied not handling it well, at the time. Yeah. And even to this day, you have to work a little bit to get her to admit that at the time it was overwhelming. And she doesn't say it automatically. She, you, you kind of have to work her into that corner to where she's like, yeah, it was terrible. Like, yeah. I didn't like it. It wasn't fun. You know, which she finally did say during the fortnight. Yeah. But yeah, and so then 2016 has a great season, wins three titles, you know, wins Charleston, her biggest title of her career. Three titles in the first four months of the yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. It was looking great. And then, boom, foot, injury, surgery. Shutdown season after the Rio Olympics, had surgery in January, was in a walking boot in March, had a peg leg in April, was her first tournament back in Wimbledon, and as we sit here in September, she is the U.S. Open champion. Yeah, the stuff about her, like, and (laughs) Mal Murray said this in the story I wrote about her after her quarterfinal, like, he was like, yeah, once she could walk again, we were fine. (laughs) Which is just sort of this, like, and he said this, like, really, just sort of, like, like, he wasn't trying to be funny when he said it. Just like, yeah, like, once she could walk again, we were ready to go. But like, it feels she couldn't like, walk. But so much And of she it, wasn't in shape. Yeah, she wasn't in shape. She was, she, she says this, she had a lot of weight to lose to get back to her, like, playing shape when she got back on tour. Because she couldn't walk or run, which is totally fit, normal. Yeah. Yeah. And she has played herself but into she, shape, as she but said. She, yeah, and she she, she, she reset. Um, and in a lot of ways, that 11 months is the best thing that has ever happened to Sloane Stevens in her career in terms of taking taking her off the tour, giving her time to enjoy. not And, not, and it's not always enjoy, but like to live her life, to be with her grandparents who she adores, to be with her boyfriend, to you know, fly around and eat at all the restaurants she wants to eat at and to live it a no- live the life that she's always wanted to. But tennis has always kind of in a weird way gotten the way of because of our grinding schedule. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and Sloan was always one of those players where you, you know, especially in 2015, I think we, we'd probably say 14 and 15, like, are you, is this fun for you? Do you like this? It, and I think that a lot of people were really asking that question a lot and her relationship with the media kind of took a bit of a nosedive. We talked and, about her a lot on this show. Yeah. You and know. It, you know, so, so let's not, you know, completely clean all that. This has all been a journey for Sloan and where she's been and which is why it does inform this fact that we've always known that she's good. Everybody knows that Sloan Stevens is good. As, as I've said before, she has hacked tennis. She can play a style of tennis that very, very, very few people can do. But maybe the time away kind of just like helped clear the air for her. 
And so now she's playing freely and she's not, you know, it used to be, how negative did she used to get on a court? Oh, yeah. Remember? Like, all of that stuff. And now, she's good. Much, much right? better. Right? Like, she, even Just she, clarity for her now. Yeah. 8-0 and o in three set matches, you wouldn't think that that was a clip that Sloane Stevens would, would hit, you know, in the first three set matches, eight three set matches that she would play in a season. Um, playing great. Didn't have an easy draw. So this no. isn't even one that anybody can even point at and say you fluked it. Not at all. Not at I all. mean, her draw was much tougher than Rafa's. <laughs> I mean, she got <laughs> she played uh, in this draw uh, first round against Vinci right off the bat, former finalist two years ago. Then gets Sibokova, who's had a crap year, but has you know made the final still, New Haven the week right, before. Still had been still, playing better, playing better, and it's a tough out at a slam always. And beat her in three and yeah. was down a break in the third. Then played Ash Barty, who's like the Critics' Choice Award winner for this year, basically. She is. Then she played <laughs> Yulia Gerges, who has had a great summer. Yep. Then she played Sevastova, who is not a tough quarterfinal draw, I can't say that. But she had been the quarterfinals the year before, played very tough. That was a third set tiebreak match. Then she plays Venus. She gets another Williams sister in a big stage of a slam, and that crowd was all for Venus yeah. in that semifinal. And then she gets Madison Keys, which was not the worst final matchup for her. Uh, 1-0 against her previously, and just it was pretty clear early on that she was handling it better and Sloan is now five and oh in finals uh in her career uh, which is a pretty good sort of Chuck Vitazian mark I think Chuck Vitazian <laughs> had like eight and oh before she finally lost one and Golbus is the other one I know who's undefeated in, in finals that's so some a good company to keep right there for Sloan um yeah and she just she always looked like she was in there fighting and always like had a plan and her clarity actually yeah, seems to have found herself as a counter puncher with a lot of punch basically yep who can, you know, stay back in the point a little bit and wait for an opening and then pounce on it. Or just against Madison, she did a great job of mixing up her shots and giving her sort of weird bounces. Madison's unforced error count. She played a tactical, tactically right. great match, Sloan did. She forced a lot of the, un- or, you yeah. know, she, let earned, set, set, the she earned the unforced errors that she got yeah. from, from Keys. And that was pretty clear watching it uh, down the sort of court level where I was. Um, it was it was a very good match. and uh, Or well, not a very good, a very good performance by her. And it's a surprising one, and it sort of – it seems like she did things a little bit out of order in her career almost, but mm. it's one of those things, and I said this for both of them. If you had said – if you had, like – if you one of those, like, throwaway lines in a column or something in, like, 2012, oh, yeah, so 2017 U.S. Open final will be between Madison Keys and Sloane Stevens, and that just sort of seems like the future on track. And in their own both weird, circuitous, circuitous ways, they got there. They did. And it was – uh pretty cool for both of them I, it's been interesting to see where, where sloan goes with this in the future i don't know yep first of all like her she's gonna i think i think she needs a bunch of wild cards to get into some tournaments in asia if she wants to play she has protected ranking okay and she used them yeah for she, Beijing said, she them. told me that she because uh, i was when i talked to her after the final i was like basically about to lead up to a question of like are you even going to play this fall like because yeah. you don't have to basically building in this whole idea of like you know, you won this thing, your ranking's up, you're good for Australia. And she had skipped fall a couple times before. Yeah, exactly. Like, you could, like, for all of her talk of, like, I just want to go home, I just want to sit on the couch, I just want to watch Netflix, like, and be normal. I was, like, kind of teeing this up of, like, oh, yeah, you can still do that. She's like, no, no, I'm going to Asia. I have my projected ranking I'm in. I'm like, okay. So Yeah, good yeah. for her. Uh, and she'll obviously get, now. and she has a ranking in the top 20 now, again, uh, so she'll get in wherever she wants. And it's funny that her re- real ranking now is ahead of her projected ranking, which is pretty funny. Yeah. And for her to do that and to be a perfect case example of how protected ranking should you work in a dream scenario you know you use it to get entries into a few tournaments eventually it clicks and you start winning and you don't need it anymore yeah it's an extreme example of that compared to like a tersen off on the men's side but um and she yeah. and she and she's in a situation where she could she could play zhuhai 
And oh, she yeah. Could, and she could win. Obviously, she's at 17 already, and she has no points to defend for the rest of the year. So She's 12 in the Singapore race. It's not impossible. Yeah, it's, it's not impossible either. No, for race. sure. I mean, both for her and Madison Keys, like in a position where they could chase down those year-end um, those year-end uh, uh, tournaments is, is pretty significant, I think, for them, not just for, obviously, everybody wants to qualify for Singapore, but Zhuhai is a big point uh, point gain. It helps get you into There's situation. And, and Madison Keys is defending a lot of points in the fall. So uh, she is in a situation where her ranking is a little bit inflated. Her Not her race ranking, but her actual ranking is a little bit inflated to where she is um, because obviously she took all that uh, a bit of time off, but um, she does have a significant amount of points to defend in the fall with a, a semifinal run in Beijing. Or no, was that the final? No, semifinal in Beijing, um, and then obviously qualifying for the, the, the year-end finals and winning a match. So. In Singapore, yeah. yeah. Um, so that is Sloan. Let's get to Madison. Uh, Madison made the final, her first Grand Slam final. And like it seemed like a weirdly like similar trajectory to Sloan, injury story. Once an Australian Open semi finalist before comes back in this All American semi final, which I haven't mentioned before. Sloan played Venus and Madison played Coco Vandeweghe, um, and it was a moment that American tennis sort of keepers were very <laughs> uh, very excited to talk about, and, and rightly so. Getting it's it's pretty impressive. No country had done that uh, in over thirty years, so that's pretty good to get all four semi finalists there. Um, Madison played really well in this tournament. Uh, there's no getting around that. Her match, the marquee match for me, and I'm guessing for you too, is what she did against Svitolina. Coming back from, I think, 4-2 down in the third. Yeah. Yep. And just playing, that's exactly the kind of player she doesn't usually beat. Yep. A player who makes her make balls, who's steady, who has a little bit of pop too. I mean, is a very smart player. Um, Svitolina, I think there are question marks about how Svitolina handles big stages of slams. It's very fair to say that that, night session at Ash is part of why wow. Madison won that match yeah, against Vitalina. both that and then what she what happened in the quarterfinals at the French Open against exactly. Halep as yeah. well. I mean, you know, opportunities there and on a plate yeah. and couldn't close. And she's been very close to number one but hasn't made a slam semi yet. So yeah. there's things that she's good at and bad at uh, for her. But Keys won that. All credit to her. She had previously beaten Vezinina in a tough match round before that. Um, and then she beats Kanepi, which is not a tough quarterfinal, but she had to be solid through it and had the pressure of the other three Americans having already made it through. Um, and then she got uh, Coco and crushed Coco in that in that semifinal. Crushed her real good. I wasn't expecting that. No one was expecting that. Yeah, it was what one and two. Yeah, it was and, stunning. Yeah. Stunning performance from from Madison, and she really peaked. I think in that match, it was, as she said, she was like, "I'm in. The, I was in the zone, and I knew it." And you know, it's very hard to get Madison Keys to ever have herself admit that she played really well. And that one, she's like, "I played really, really well." Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's how good she was playing, but. You know, getting back to her first week, those matches against Svitolina and against Vesnina, she did not play well um, and she, for most of those matches. And she had to grind them out and she had to gut them out. And I think her ability to do that, I think, is what helped set up her second week. Because at that point, she kind of knew, it's okay. Like, if I don't come out guns blazing, I can still beat the number four player in the world. You know, a player who, as Ben said, you know, um, she's historically going to struggle against. I mean, no. just go and pull up her head-to-head against Simona Halep and... That will explain or a lot. Wozniacki. Yeah, or Wozniacki. Yeah, those, those sorts of players. Or so, Sloan now. Well, yeah, zero and two against Sloan now, um, which was always going to be the big struggle um, in the, the final match. I mean, I had kind of given Madison fifty one percent chance to win that match only because I thought that she was going to handle her nerves far better than she did. She admitted she was incredibly nervous um, going into the match. Physically, maybe wasn't the best. Was dealing with a leg injury, but never wanted to talk about it. Didn't want to take away anything from what Sloan had done. And um, and the way that Sloan was playing, again, six unforced errors. Like, come on. As she said, shut the front door. Shut the front door. 
give the girl her snaps. That is a snap. That is a stat. So, yeah, no, I mean, a, a fantastic uh, uh, tournament for Madison Keys. And I think that, as she said, in a couple of days, she will realize that. But Madison Keys was cr- was crushed. Yeah. Not necessarily because she lost the front U.S. Open final or whatever, but I think because, not unlike what happened with Coco Vandeweghe in the semifinals, of just like not going out there in the biggest match of your life and not being able to show people what you can do. I think that that is where it really, really stings. Think, not losing to Sloan. I think for Coco, it was more about just like having somebody better than you. That almost seemed, that's what she said. When yeah, she was, maybe. She was tearful in her presser. She was, yeah, she was. Um, um, yeah, maybe it was that. I mean, she said like, I think I asked her, like, can you articulate like why, why do you feel the way that you do right now? And she, she doesn't, she doesn't and she usually said, feel like yeah, she's not in control of the match. She wasn't in control of the match and she doesn't normally feel that way. Whereas I think with Madison, it was just like a swirl of things. And I think she said, like, yeah, when she kept going back to, like, I wish I could have won more games. Or, like, it was about yeah. getting out there and getting there was waxed. A, there were some moments in that final game that were intense. Mm-hmm. And if you watch the clock in the back, she was trying to break that hour mark in that match. Yeah. And she had to work. She had 61 minutes in the end. She got <laughs> over the line. Way to go, Madison, on that. But, um, yeah, that was clearly, like, something in her mind as the embarrassment factor of yeah. being on a slam final and getting worked over by an unseated opponent. Especially, I mean, I mean, even though Sloan's a good player and people thought it was a really, it was a tough, no one had a real confident pick for this match. No. And so I don't think people picked uh, Sloan in, in easy straights, but that's that's how it worked out. Um, Coco uh, beat Caroline Puskova in the quarterfinals. Had a heck of a run. Had a very good run. Uh, Coco, much a bit like the reminiscent of the Australian Open where she also made a semifinal. I think that run was better than this one. But um, she beat some very good players, very very uh, in tough matches, uh, beating Redvanska, was... Safarova, those are the and, and um, Jabur, Jabur. But like I think the Redvanska, Safarova, Pliskova triple Three was different really matches, massive yeah. because she is like Redvanska owns her, Safarova owns her. The head to heads are completely lopsided, um, and Pliskova was I think a little bit more even. Um, but for her to get through, especially that Redvanska match in that three in three sets. I believe coming down from a break in the third in that one against Aga, um, that was big. And I think that that one is what the, is the match that really kind of tick, click, uh, tick things off for her, not unlike the match she beat uh, when she beat Bouchard um, earlier this year at the Australian Open. That really like helped her kind of just roll yeah. for the next few rounds. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a phenomenal tournament for Coco Vandeweghe. Again, it can't be said it enough. Two Grand Slam semifinals, each case beating the world number one en route to that semifinal. Yeah. And decisively. Yeah, decisively. And yeah. the um, other matches she had, she lost the first set to Ali Risk in that first round match, and that was not an easy match for sure. And then she had to save set points in the first set against uh, Onjeber, and that's not easy either. So it was just a very, very solid round for her. And like you said, making two semifinals and, and a quarterfinal at Slams this year, great, mm-hmm. great year. And she obviously has never been short on confidence, but she has to feel good about what she's going to be able to do. And... And she's and in she the has, running for Singapore. And she has the, yeah, and she she's 11th, I think, yeah, right? So, yeah, so, exactly, so she's in that mix for sure also. Um, Pliskova, who she beat, who loses number one to Muguruza, I thought Pliskova had a really crappy tournament. Yeah, and I think Pliskova I, would agree I, with I, I think, I'm sure she would agree with me there. And I was just like, weird. I watched a bunch of her matches and was just like never, never impressed. I mean, she, she went deep in the third against Nicole Gibbs, which was the first sort of like, that's just not a match. Gibbs played really well in that match. That's not the kind of match that you would think would give Pliskova trouble. That should be one where she can get easy holds and can still sort of probably beat her from the baseline too. Pliskova's obviously a great baseliner also, uh, but she had trouble in that one. She had trouble again against Zhang Shui, and then she 
kind of an easy match against Jen Brady in the fourth round, which maybe was a bit of a mirage for what was happening going to happen against uh, uh, Coco in the in the quarters. But Pliskova, I think, is stalling a little bit, and it's frustrating because I still think that just on pure who, if everyone's at their peak right now in tennis, I think Pliskova still could should be number one of not including Serena who's out. Um, I think her peak is the best peak, and she just hasn't she's been off it since the French, which was this amazing out of nowhere tournament where she made semis. And since then, I've been disappointed by her form uh, for sure. I, I think her her she's not getting many free points off her serve like she used to when she made the final here last year, and just in her whole rise, even though she has adopted this ace queen hashtag, she's hitting fewer aces. So you got to kind of stick with the marketing and play better, Plisco, on that front, if nothing else. And uh, yeah, what's what's ranking down to now? Four. Three, I think. Three, okay. Um, yeah. So she, no, she, maybe four. That's right. Halep would have still cleared her. Yeah. Uh, so she's out of number one, and the new number one is mm-hmm. Garmini Muguruza, who I think is an entirely plausible number one, <laughs> uh, uh, who got beat in a great match by uh, Petra Kvitova. We haven't mentioned Petra or Venus really much, but they played in that quarter and played a great quarterfinal. Also. But Petra, not uh, Garbini lost there, but she's just number one. She's the fourth n- number one of this year. How do you think she'll uh, handle it? I think she'll handle it well. I mean, I don't know if she'll have it for very long. I mean, right now the bunch, everybody's bunched up really quite tightly. If Venus had gone on to win this title, she would have been just 56 points behind Muguruza with not much to defend for the rest of the year. So that's how tight things are. I mean, between Garbina, um, uh, Simona, Carolina, Venus... Um, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot of points in the fall. I think it's everything's going to come down to the to Singapore. I don't think that anybody will clinch the year-end number one before then. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's exciting. I think it's great. I don't mind it. I think that Gar- Garbina Muguruza, if she loses number one, this is not the first time she or the last time she's going to be number one. She is. She embodies number one. She's a good number one in the ways that... And I, which I say that as somebody who hates that terminology because I just think that number one is a mathematical calculation. But for people who are like looking for something more than that, of like a figurehead, um, a, you know, that she, she really does play that part really well. And I think that she wants to, in a lot of ways, to play that part of being, I am the number one. I am the queen. I am the one that sits in the penthouse and you all are supposed to come after me. I think that she will, she's older now. I don't think she would have been ready to deal with it, la- you know, last year. But I think that she's she's getting there to where I don't think that it, it will actually be an encumbrance to her. And it helps that she has two slams to her name. I mean, mm-hmm. that just helps in, in terms of how people will talk about number one. And, and she does have a very low ranking point total to be a number one. I think she's only 6,000 something, right? So that's different. And that makes her not a resounding number one. She hasn't won very many titles for your average number one, just regular tour titles. Two of her four titles, right, are slams? Two of her five titles. Five. Okay. So still a, a pretty low number of titles to be number one. But uh, but she's a good player, and uh, yeah, and shout out to Kvitova. I mentioned briefly there, who beat her. That was an incredible story for her getting quarters here. Um, that match against Venus was my favorite match of the tournament. I think, I think. Mine was Sharapova Halep, but yeah, yeah. that was that's also a good pick. Um, but uh, but yeah, no great tournament for Petra. What 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 can we say about about our little Petrie? She just has this weird way of stunning us in ways that um. Yeah, you're not really entirely prepared for it at any given moment. But, yeah, great match against Venus. Those two doing what they always do. Um, it's one of the more improbable, improbably compelling rivalries, only because I'm 
very rarely to me do, does like power for power matchups elicit consistently good matches yeah. and consistently compelling ones because normally somebody's going to be off and then it's going to run away really fast. Um, but that matchup has always been great and th- it was decided in a third set tiebreaker. Um, Petra had a break lead in each of the sets, was only able to take the second, got pegged back in the third, wasn't holding serve particularly well, but Venus was playing great. It was awesome. But I think that the Sharapova Hallett match is still my match of the tournament only because first ball to last ball, that match was high quality yeah. and it was insane. Yeah, definitely. And we did a podcast on that match yeah. as well. Um, Venus, we haven't talked about. What, how should Venus feel about this tournament? And it's her, she made two slam finals this year. And a semi here in New York on a fourth round in France. So that's a great run of, of slams. No titles, though. And I'm sure she's probably not satisfied with that. No, of course she's not satisfied but, with but that. I... She's a champion. But I think that she has to look at this as she had an opportunity and she got beat in the end. That backhand that Sloane Stevens hit at four, serving at 4-5-30 all. Yeah, it was unreal. Um, was unreal. It ended a 25-shot rally, which was the longest rally of the match. At 4-5 in the third, it allowed her to hold, and she went on to lose one point for the rest of the match, Sloane Stevens. She completely took Venus's legs out from under. She kept running her corner to corner. If you look at, like, kind of the rally cap, the rally count statistics for those final three or four games, like, Sloane just went on lockdown, and she wasn't missing, and she made, and she just, Venus got fatigued, and she got broken at love, and Sloane held at 15. It was a whole thing, but, um, but yeah, I mean, Venus put herself in that position to win that match. And she put it there, a piece of magic and some, I mean, peak Sloane Stevens got Sloane over the line there. I don't think any of us has ever seen Sloane Stevens no. play better than those final three games and then maybe going into the final. That's, yeah, she kept, kept going wrong. And let's be very clear about this with Sloane. And I think people already were saying this by some time Cincinnati happened. But, like, this was not Sloane getting back to her best. This was better than ever Sloane. Yes. Definitely. Yes, 100%. Now, this was, this was that, that's what makes it so astounding. Is that this isn't a reversion? This is an evolution, and that's you know impressive in such a, sm- a small amount of time. And actually, maybe it's easier to evolve when you just don't look back, when you're not even yeah. trying to get back to your old self. You're just like, so this is me, and you know, you, you just move ahead. But but yeah, I mean, Venus will be frustrated, obviously, but she's in position to again qualify for Singapore. She could hunt down the number one ranking. I mean, who knows? It, you know, Singapore would be her. big because Singapore, she hasn't made it to the yeah. champs in a long time. 2009, I think. Yeah, yeah so. a long time. A lot of good results without making yeah. the champs. And maybe she was great. hurt one year, 2010 maybe. Possibly. But, and it'd be yeah. great. And it'd be great to have her in the mix. I mean, you know, even right now, everybody's just kind of looking at that Singapore leaderboard being like, who are the eight that people want to see there? Like, what would be the best tournament, you know? And it's actually, everybody has different answers because of the ma- the people. some people want stars, some people want matchups. Who want slam champs? Some people want slam champs. The whole, you know, yeah. it's a whole um, it, difficult permutation because I mean, Ostapenko is not even in, you know, the top eight at the moment. I don't think, unless things shift. I think she's eight, she and I want to say Kiki is nine. Kiki's nine, Sveta's ten, Coco's eleven. So Ostapenko must be eight. Yeah, and right. Sloan is twelve. Okay, um, Sloan's already twelve. It's nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. So it, it you know, it, it all sets things up for a very interesting fall. But getting back to Venus. She came into the, the the U.S. Open again, much like she has gone into every other slam that she has made the final of, with zero form. She didn't play well in Toronto, Cincinnati, and she got it done. I mean, you get yourself into the semifinal and put yourself in position. It's all you can ask for, and um, I wouldn't be holding my my head down at all if I'm Venus Williams after that slam season. I would only be holling my head down if I was looking at my new niece. Because congrats <laughs> to Serena on their uh, arrival. Yeah, 
so that is the U.S. Open. I want to get a couple other things that are coming up in the world of tennis uh, soon, very soon. Uh, Courtney, you spent, uh, you've had a fun time lately. <laughs> put a lot of time with, with Billie Jean King. I have. Uh, which is, I'm, I'm not going to hide that I'm wildly jealous of that because she's a cool, <laughs> cool lady. And she was with a um, another cool lady who has, I was walking in front of her and she was behind me in the hall. I didn't realize she was there until I heard her voice. And it's so low, Emma Stone. From it makes all, me from, sound like a soprano. Right? <laughs> that And it made me think that that impression that, uh, I knew it was good before, but that, no, never mind. It was Jennifer Lawrence that I was thinking of that Ariana Grande did the impression on. Oh, well, Emma Stone has a very low voice, is all I'm trying to say. Um, and I didn't realize that until I, I heard her in person. Maybe she just smoked several packs. I don't know. Um, all that is to say, you're on them. The movie's coming out. Yeah, Battle, Battle of the Sexes, Sexes movie, which we've yeah. you've seen twice, I want to say. Uh-huh. I've seen once. Uh, how should we prep our audience for seeing this movie? I mean, I don't think that people really need much prep other than you should go see it. Obviously, if you listen to No Challenges Remaining, you're a tennis fan. You're and in, so, NCR is very much overlapping the yeah, demo of this exactly. movie. Yeah, exactly. So, so I assume that everybody who donated to our Kickstarter, who downloads our episodes, who listens to Ben and I talk our bullshit every single week, that you love tennis and therefore you will love this movie. Because first of all... The tennis is really good in this movie. First movie in the history of tennis movies where the tennis is, like, enjoyable to watch. I genuinely enjoyed, like, and the Battle of the Sexes, the reenactment of the points, is, like, 25 minutes of the movie, which is significant. I hadn't realized who their, until just this week, yeah. who their stunt doubles were. The Vince Spadia, that's such a good pick. Yeah. The Vince Spadia played, it was the stand-in for, for, Bobby, for Steve Carell being Bobby Riggs. And I didn't. I hadn't heard of the woman who was the uh, Billy, uh, Kristen, but Caitlin. I want to say. Oh, sorry, Caitlin. It was, it, she went to. She played college tennis in California somewhere. She's a good player, also. Um, yeah, and it looks really good. And it also looks like authentic to the era. Yeah, it looks how like how it's tennis like seventies tennis. It's like they they film it from the TV angle, so it's like you're watching the match like at home on yeah. your TV, and it's pretty much uncut points. I mean, yeah. it's like from serve to winner, reenacting specific points from the match. That's great. Billy, um, Emma Stone is, ama- I, I think, just really, really great in it. I think she totally captures Billy. I was very surprised with the casting, I'll say. I thought oh, for sure. When, I when it, definitely when it rolled came my out, eyes. When it came out, I was like, really? Because I think of Emma Stone being, and even seeing her again this week, I was sort of revalidated. When I was like, I think it was being this like, kind of like waifish little person, skinny, you know, starlet, typical Hollywood-looking person, and Billy is being a more buff, muscular athlete, especially in her peak, and not that she's not unathletic in her 70s now. Um, she probably is less she athletic. Is. She <laughs> um, still, like, works out every day. It's I, amazing. Uh, so there's, uh, yes, yeah, so, but I think but Emma did a really good job of getting better shape and looks athletic yep. in the movie, she got which is good. And she, and she does the walk. She does very the walk. Key. The Billy, Billy walk, walk is money. It's very key. So that's that's good choreography. It's purposeful. La. It's leaning yeah. forward. It's leaning in. And and, and and Steve Carell is really good too. As Sarah uh, Silverman's hilarious as Gladys, Gladys Heldman. You know, the original nine, like like are represented in the movie. Natalie Morales is hilarious. You as will Rosie become Cassells. a big Rosie Casals fan, as yeah. I was gonna say in this movie. If you don't um, know Rosie Casals. If you don't know Rosie Casals, first of all, I have an amazing episode of the WT Insider podcast coming with Rosie Casals. Oh, cool. Thirty minutes conversation with her where she oh. is phenomenal because Rosie Casals, who they call the general, um, <laughs> is amazing and she's the one that gave Billie Jean King her nickname Old Lady. To this day, I can tell you this, they still call each other that. Oh. Um, well, <laughs> Billy calls her Rosie. But <laughs> Rosie still just to this day. Oh, lady, get some chopsticks. <laughs> like, sorry, it's it's phenomenal. These are great inside <laughs> jokes. And again, I'm not jealous of it all. Sorry. But you're part of them. 
Get some chopsticks. Get I some wish chopsticks. I was there for that. Get some um, chopsticks. Yeah, so it's good. Here. I will say that the everyone's sort of main takeaway from this movie, aside from the tennis being really good, is they are surprised by how big a part of it Billy's love life is. Sure. Which I, I found, yeah. I was definitely surprised when I first saw it. Um, it's about, you know, if you don't know her life, uh, she was married to Larry King, not that Larry King, but another guy who's also named Larry King, and, um, and was beginning to have an affair with a hairdresser named Marilyn, and sort of figuring out her own sexuality at the time um and what my criticism of it is they sort of tied that into the tennis parts of it more than i would have liked and i think and i the ending like the last like 30 seconds of the movie i don't like but overall definitely like at least a nine out of ten i I think it's a very i think it's the best tennis movie it's like a real tennis movie not like match point right yeah i know it's a real tennis movie it's a real tennis movie and i think that the most important thing and i'll say this about um, you know, for for our listeners who are going to go see the movie, I mean, yes, there there's girl on girl kissing in the movie, so I'm just going to flag that for there's you. There's more PG-13. than kissing. There are girl on girl bedroom scenes in this movie. There's nothing more than they just make out. It's extended. It's a long scene. It's un- I think the problem is because it's uncomfortable because we know Billy. So like when you're watching, it, you're like, I don't. But um, but no, it's not that. But the, the love scenes are not that much, and they're not love scenes. They're, just, they're literally making out, man. Anyways. But, um, so long as, like, if you have, like, younger sisters or younger brothers or, like, whatever, and you're comfortable with them seeing that, so that's up to you. I'm not going to judge. Whatever. But the whole purpose of this movie and what I hope for this movie, and I know this is what Billy hopes for the movie, is that it takes the battle of sexes to the younger generation. Because for those of us, and I'm Generation X, so I grew up, and even for me, which is obviously there's a generation below me in the millennials, but, like, even for me, I grew up in the wake of the Battle of Sexes and Title IX. All of this happened before I was born. I grew up with the women's movement and the movement for equality already kind of in full gear. Um, I never thought twice about not being able to go to university or go to go play sports at school or get a scholarship or go be a lawyer or go become a sports writer. I've never thought twice about the gender dynamic that goes with that. And all of that is in tribute and, and because of Billie Jean King, in my personal opinion, for me, um, in terms of, and it's, and the battle of the sexes and the formation of title, uh, uh, the formation of the WTA tour, obviously, and title nine, all events that took place within a two to three year span of of each other really have set up my life, like, and shot me out in the world, (laughs) like a cannonball. And so, but there's a lot of people, obviously younger people in the States who aren't familiar with any of that. And then also people internationally who understandably would not be familiar with that. Somebody in Ukraine. It's a very American event. Yeah, yeah, somebody in Ukraine or Britain or anywhere else would have no reason to understand what the Battle of the Sexes was and what it means to us as Americans in pop culture. And I feel like it, so therefore this represents a great opportunity for them to like understand what this meant and why it was such a trigger for such change in the United States and why to this day we as Americans revere Billie Jean King. Like, it is a different level. She's, like, a real-life Beyonce to me. Like, you know, it's just like, you're Billy. oh my god! Like, when she says hello, you, like, you kind of freak out a little bit. Like, she's, she's a goddess, and there's a reason why. And there's a reason why her name is on, you know, one of the biggest, you know, uh, slam venues in the world. There's a reason why she is what she is. And, yeah, so I hope people go see it. I hope they enjoy it. And I think that, I think that y'all will, because it's funny and poignant. Alan Cumming as Ted Tindling's great. Elizabeth Shue rocks the 70s fashion. She looks so good. So good. She plays the, uh, she plays Bobby Riggs' wife. Um, and yeah, the tennis is great. I, I would I would I would I would download that movie and or I would buy it and like rewatch the tennis just like in passing. I liked it that yeah. much. No, it's 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 very good. Um, like I said, it's not a perfect movie. 
but it's dang good. They did a good job, and I hope that it sort of yeah, it's a a, a great sort of the, the biopic that that Billie Jean deserved. And she's had a couple of couple of their tennis, but I think this one does her justice in a very Hollywood sort of a list way. So okay. so go see it, go support tennis movies. It's the first of three tennis movies. I think they're coming out this fall. Um, like I said, we were talking earlier, I'm not exactly sure what the third one is, but I know the other one is the Shia LaBeouf uh, McEnroe Borg movie, which is a Swedish made movie, I think, that's more Borg centric. Um, it's called Borg McEnroe, actually, not McEnroe Borg. Borg McEnroe. Um, so, yeah, there's that, and uh, have a good time at the movies. Um, yeah, go see movies. Movies are cool. We went to uh, see uh, that thing Atomic uh, Blonde. Atomic Blonde. <laughs> I was thinking the name of Charlize. Which was good, yeah, right? It was good. It was I wasn't good. sure if Ben was going to like it or not, but he liked it. I, I It was fun. Yeah. It was fun. It's enjoyable. And the other thing, um, which is coming out soon on two days, probably around the same time as this podcast, is Maria Sharapova's uh, autobiography or memoir. I'm not sure which better term for it. Uh, Unstoppable. Uh, My life so far, uh, which is Maria's book. And we both read it, got our copies in Cincinnati. Um, I like this book. I think this book is, is very well written and very well done um, and does her justice and i will just start off by saying it is so much better than that terrible ass documentary she did this year which was a complete waste of time and i cannot say enough about how bad it was it was terrible it was a completely self-indulgent commercialized piece of badness that just like i assume her haters didn't watch it because you don't want to spend dollar night watch movie that's something you hate but all of the criticisms of her that come up like that one check all those boxes for being overly commercialized overly stylized like kind of like like defensive things, whatever. This book is not that. This book is so much more substantive, so much more thoughtful, well-written, clearly like a lot of effort put into it and capsing her whole life in a way that um, is, you know, does her justice and, and the process, the best parts of it, I think at the beginning yeah. for her pro career, all of her stuff about her childhood in Florida um, and coming up with, coming over with Yuri when she was just seven years old and they're sort of, adventures and misadventures in trying to get her to be a pro tennis player and uh yeah i really liked it i highly recommend it it's one of the you know it's in a sort of group of good 21st century tennis autobiographies what i put in there with andre axis open and lena's book which i both really liked yeah no i mean i i I was surprised how much i liked it I, i wasn't sure what i was expecting but i will be honest going into the book because of who maria is and not just well i should retract that because i don't know who maria is i know the maria that i know which is through a completely professional very arm's length press conferences and interviews thing i don't think i've ever had a personal conversation with maria sharapova so i can't say i know who she is but of the maria sharapova that i know i much like how you were mentioning the documentary from this summer i was like oh no is this gonna be like 250 words of just like pr yeah. You know, is this going to be branding? Is this going to be rebranding? Because this is going to be a really great opportunity coming off of her, you know, obviously 15-month uh, anti-doping suspension to kind of rebrand. Um, and and that would be a very tempting thing to do, you know, and and kind of make it all shiny and happy and, and vapid, effectively. And I didn't find that to be the case at all with the book. I think it's great that uh, she worked with Rich Cohen, who is a phenomenal yeah, writer. a very good writer. Very good writer. And he was able to really lock things down into something cohesive while also at the same time, one thing that really bothers me about memoirs is when the person doesn't sound like themselves. Which is Nadal's book Yes, to me. Rafa's book is, I'm sorry, like it's not, it's unreadable to me. Yeah. It's unreadable. It, it's just, that's not how Rafa talks. It's not how he sounds like. That's not, it, no, it doesn't work. Maybe it's different in Spanish. I don't know. But at least in the translation, it didn't. But at least with Lee Nas, like even in a translated 
I mean, because it was written in English. Translated from Chinese? I can't remember. If no, it was it. Chinese first, then Chinese English. Chinese first, then English. It still kind of, like, sounded like her. It still yeah. had her spirit. It still had... It worked. This one sounds like Maria. Yeah. Even when she's ripping on the Holiday Inn Express. It's, yeah, because it has, it has things it that has are, like... It has little quips. It has things that are unflattering for her. They're, yeah. like, revealing parts of her character that are just her being a bitchy snob sometimes and that's fine and she's kind of and she kind of owns that she makes like completely unnecessary digs at people and places and things and just sort of is snooty in a way that is how she wants to be presented and it's not what i would i would would polish that out if i was trying to make it a purely we want you to like this person book right um but she does let those things through and it's also not a book unlike the documentary again which is part of the part of the point of the documentary it's not mostly about the meldonium stuff right there's a prologue of like three pages at the beginning and then like literally the last chapter out of 18 or 19 chapters is that and but everything in between is about her life not including that and yeah. um i think that's good i think that's good that she didn't try to because another part of why the documentary sucked is that it was re-legislating a lot of her old talking points that we'd all heard already so many times before and on the meldonium stuff so so this is much better i recommend it if you are a hater um you know, don't pay for it. I guess get it out of your library or something and check it out if you but feel I, like you I, need to do that. But but give it a shot. And I will and I will say this: I know that there are clips of the book circulating on the internet, yeah. and I will say this: that book is not that clip. It is like that is not the only like. Is Serena Williams very much a part of this memoir? Yes, she is, and that is I think a very interesting decision, and it gives you some insight into kind of where. Serena does sit within Maria's head. But that being said, the clip that is circulating that everybody's getting up in arms about, it is a very small portion, in my opinion. It's also incomplete. There's also like a there's sentence other... left, there's sentences left out of that. It's not a, yeah, it's not a it's complete, not a complete quote. quote. And there's other stuff that's around it to give... Her relationship with Serena is very complicated. And at times it has obviously been antagonistic. At other times, as Maria writes, she kind of wishes that it wasn't. And she talks about why she wishes that it wasn't. And why you know and it's yeah. her side of the story but and i think it's um, very good reader service that she talks about serena as much as she does because could you imagine if she wrote this book and like never mentioned serena? it would be ridiculous <laughs> but i'm also but i also will say in serena's book um the 2009 book called on the line which is funny because she just foot faulted right before she put out on the line well, that's like how everybody's laughing about maria i, I know but unstoppable. <laughs> tennis players can't title for shit this is clearly <laughs> what we're finding out but um but is that Marie? That Serena? Like I read that book. I remember I read it. Like I was like, oh, I got to read this book. I was, you know, liked it Serena forever. Uh, read it and was like, there's no Justine Ennen in here. And Justine Ennen is a player who like was her like biggest tormentor in her career. And obviously Venus, she might have lost two more times, but Ennen was the one who was just like ideologically opposed to, who was offensive to her. Who beat her three times at Slams in two thousand seven? Who had stories she could give more right. color to? Who had in her mind had cheated her, had robbed yeah. her out of her fifth straight Slam title in, in Paris two thousand three? That was the player who was like, "What will she say about Justine?" And she like literally mentioned her once in passing, and that was it. And I was remember feeling really unsatisfied by that in this book. And Maria will not give you that. There's not every single thing. I mean, there's not. Um, for example, she did not talk. She did not mention the uh, twenty thirteen stuff about Patrick and. It's Black true. heart she and all that stuff did not is not in the book, but um, but most of the other stuff that you want to see in there is in there. Yeah, and there's um, a, there's a yeah. lot there's I mean again a lot of Gregor stuff. There's a lot of Gregor stuff. Um, there's some cute photos. There's but all the stuff in the early days, um, you know, of of coming to Florida and, and being at Boletaries and working with Landsdorp and just what it was like to be like a Russian immigrant and try and like try and find 
this dream and realize this dream. I thought it was all it was all really good and it was well really well done and I learned stuff. There was stuff that I did yeah. not know, like really big things that I had no clue um, had happened. So um, yeah, it's good. It's I'm surprised. I'll be honest. I didn't think it was going to be this good. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. And thank you guys for listening to us, which hopefully we suppressed your expectations also. I'm sure they were low. <laughs> um, if you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, uh, follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash ncrpodcast. Follow along on Twitter at ncr underscore tennis. Send us emails, no challenges remaining, at gmail.com. Our iTunes is a thing that you should subscribe to us on and any other podcasting platform of your choice to get episodes delivered automatically whenever they sporadically pop up. We haven't been weekly that consistently lately, but we'll try to be better on that. Um, yeah. Do you have any thoughts leaving uh, New York? Leaving New York. I mean, very pleasant weather-wise this year. Really nice, New York, yeah. lovely. But I have to say this. I say this reluctantly. This was the best iteration of the U.S. Open I've ever been to. Not just because of what had happened on the court, but I really do feel like the USTA got so many things right this year whether it was down to i don't know the hella fancy tvs we have in there that are really nice those samsungs are really really the monitors nice. are really yeah, curved yeah the moderator gary improved he's dramatically really and, and he's he, great and he actually you can he, see what the value that he added and he improved over the course of last year even too right that's yeah. what i mean um the grounds felt like more even though there's still obviously some construction going on with the new courts like Everything felt very seamless this year, and it felt like they were doing everything the right way. And, like, Sportsmanship's Awards, their initiative to give the coaches a trophy of the champions, I think that's great. Shout out to, I believe, a couple of these things that are going really well. I think you can credit Eric Buderak for. Okay. There's a past NCR guest also, I believe. And I think and he he and Stacey Allister are the two new faces there. And I think the trophies, I'm pretty I hope, in that right, is an Eric Buderak initiative. Yeah. So... That's been very popular with the champs, too. They've loved that. Yeah. No, and I think that that's great. You know, I mean, there's just a lot of kind of like, um, I don't know, like f- for everybody, the U.S. Open always gets accused of being the most cynical of the four slams. It's so corporate. It's about making money. They don't care about the people. They don't care about the media. They don't care about the players, blah, blah, blah. That's always been kind of the, the general sense. I really did not get that sense at all this year. I felt like it was a very earnestly like trying to do good trying to do the right thing i agree um, and, and i really real, loved that and they had a really really good tournament i they agree did. with you on that um we mentioned the finini stuff earlier but and that includes they handled that not perfectly but very well and you mentioned the trophies replacing roberta vinci's trophy that got stolen yeah exactly that's it a great that. that's a that great, great gesture that like i can't honestly imagine the other slams doing to do it so fast yeah. too it had to only be been a few weeks yeah and to be like and people like oh I, I, I don't know i can't imagine wimbledon doing that no off the top of my head um yeah so so that's a uh, a very cool tournament for them i agree and i think so many of the frustrations with the u.s open are about um the transportation and the distance from which was still a problem which the traffic is and the transportation is not obviously not and i know what you're talking about there were issues with that for sure but the traffic is gonna be the traffic like if you stay in manhattan it's gonna take a long time to get there i had lovely time on the seven train I took it like three or four times this year it was fast it got me there in less than an hour routinely and it was like fine i sat there i read my my book whatever book it was and I had a lovely time. So that's that. Um, my rave, I'm trying to think of anything New York based. I still can't believe how expensive groceries are in this city. <laughs> that's one thing. Um, that's just baffling to me. I 
next year I need to remember to like pack dry goods when I come oh to this my lord. I just feel like weirdly like cheap. I go to, like I'm like I pay seven dollars <laughs> for a box of cereal. What is this? I I, I yeah. Cost of living here is stupid. Um <laughs> I read uh my sort of like vague thing will be a shout out to the concept of of consuming a book in both audiobook and print form. Mm-hmm. I started doing mm, right. I start on the way to Cincinnati. I started listening to The Bell Jar on Audible performed by Maggie Gyllenhaal. And Who's it has got the best audible voice. She was very good. And but then like if you know anything about The Bell Jar, it got confusing to follow at some yeah, point. Sure. And um it got just like yeah, if you know The Bell Jar, I don't want to spoil The Bell Jar cuz it just came out, but um <laughs> <laughs> but it's so I switched to reading in print. And that was good, and having had the voice like get me into it a little bit, mm-hmm. it's good. I did that with Moneyball also. I've done that with a couple other books that I've like. I do it normally with uh, comedy books. So okay. like Tina Fey's Bossy Pants is so much better as an audible book. I'm sure than than in reading. Whereas like in like, but yeah, I've read like I've heard like Amy Poehler's. But interestingly, going back to something else, which I'm actually go- probably going to buy and listen to it, Maria Sharapova is unstoppable, as narrated by Maria Sharapova. Oh yeah, will be hitting Audible. Also probably this week. Probably, I imagine, yeah. yeah. She she sat down and she did it. I yeah, I remember seeing time. photos of it, yeah. Yeah, so I'm kind of weirdly... There are some lines that I would like to hear her say. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. That's true. <laughs> There's some shade where I'm like, I, I need you to hear. I need Will you, you skip over it. that? She might be like, I can't be like, you know... <laughs> What is it like, Marti- Mar- Conchita Martinez Granados? Now that's a name, or whatever. It's like like snide, unnecessary Mark Sherman to the book. Even, but like, yeah, but I don't know. I need her to say the Petrova line. That's the line that, like, just for some reason, amused me so much. Yeah, but yeah. no, but there's good. But she's like, yeah, back to briefly, Sherman. Like, there's good, like, little popcorny stuff in there. Yeah. She like gives like you tennis, like, like hardcore tennis fans. You will howl. Like your fave, your fave is mentioned in here <laughs> in some way. Whether it's like Kirilenko being a bad influence in retail situations, <laughs> whether it's that. whatever else, there's just there's Her just opinions good stuff. on Nadia Petrova's game, yeah, which are summarized in really three words. <laughs> but there was a nicer earlier mention of her, which is then undone by the later mean mention. Yes, it's true. It's hard, but like so. she's like, but then she has like so she has this whole anecdote about Lin- Kim Kleisters that kind of like is kind of amazing and like. Stuff about Lindsay. She likes Lindsay a lot. She does like she Lindsay. She really respects Lindsay a lot, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's a Landsdorf connection. I don't know. Probably. Probably. But yeah, no, it's great. I, I enjoyed it. But yeah, I'm, I'm, forward, I'm looking forward to like downloading it and listening to it on, on Audible because I think that that would be a, diff- a totally different experience. I agree with you there. I'm a, little, I'm a little scared of that. <laughs> and with that, I will just get out of here. See you guys uh, later. Bye-bye. Bye. Just so unstoppable, unstoppable.